Father, that is our prayer that you would speak to us tonight. Meet us in our weakness. Show us Christ, we pray. And show us how to respond rightly to who he is. In your name, amen. If you've got a copy of the Church Bible, do keep that open. Uh, the verses will not appear on screen. Uh, there will be a PowerPoint, but all the verses uh, aren't going to appear on screen. So do keep that open in front of you. And uh, let me ask you a question. I wonder if you can remember the last wedding that you went to. I've been to quite a few weddings over the past 12 months. There was one here at Cornerstone last week, and either after the ceremony or at the reception, Amongst the various small talk that takes place, one of the first things that you talk about is how you know the happy couple. It's essentially a polite way of asking, why are you here? <laughs> Justify yourself. We all know that the people getting married are important. That's why we're gathered here. But who are you to the special couple? I was at a wedding earlier this summer where this was a, a very important question. It, it was one of the most impressive weddings I've ever been to. And it was full of impressive people. The couple getting married had done very well for themselves in the business world. The wedding was at a stunning location. And everyone was playing a competitive game of, so what do you do? People would describe what it was that they did for work, where they lived, how impressive they were. And most importantly, how they knew the couple and for how long. It was during one of these conversations where I was almost exposed as a fraud I was in conversation with some of these other impressive wedding guests, and I referred to the groom as Phil instead of Philip, which turned out to be my downfall. Phil, the person I was talking with, said, in all the years that I've known him, he's always been a Philip, not a Phil. To which the person next to them agreed, and they said, yes, I don't know anyone who calls him Phil. I was put on the spot. I felt the need to justify why I was there, why I had been invited to Philip's wedding, having called him Phil. Who was I in relation to this Philip? For the last six weeks, we've been in Mark's Gospel, a biography of Jesus' life, considering who is this man? Who is Jesus? But tonight, in our final sermon, before we press pause on Mark and move to a series in Exodus, we're going to reflect... And consider, who are we to Jesus? We thought an awful lot about who Jesus is, and we'll continue to do that as we walk through our passage now. But I, I want us to think really carefully this evening. Who are you to Jesus? You may never find yourself put on a spot at a wedding having to answer that question. But as we look at five different groups of people this evening, I hope that we'll see this is an incredibly important question. It may well reveal why we are here in church this Sunday evening. Some work by Phil Tinker has been really stimulating to me as I've prepared this sermon with his work helping to shape lots of our points this evening. But let me warn you that as we come to this passage, I think lots of this is going to be quite uncomfortable. Spending time in our passage this week, spending time thinking about who Jesus is and how I come to him, how I relate to him, who I am to Jesus, I have really felt the Holy Spirit putting his finger on my heart. 
whole host of stuff that's going on in my heart. And my prayer is that as we spend some time in this passage now, where that is needed, God's Spirit would do the same for you. That, that for each of us, we would know how to rightly respond to who Jesus is and who we are to him. So our first group of people tonight, frenzied but fleeting. After the tense Q&A session between Jesus and the religious leaders that Ben walked us through last week, verse 7 shows us Jesus withdrawing with his disciples to a lake. But as he withdraws, a large crowd follows him. A frenzied crowd of people from all over the region come to see this Jesus to the point where to stop the whole thing from descending into absolute chaos, Jesus asks his disciples to set up a small boat for him so that people can still see him, hear him, without utterly crowding him out and crushing him. But just notice why the crowd are so frenzied. The crowd are so frenzied, verse 10, for he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Now, we've already seen Jesus heal a lot of people that came to him in the first three chapters of Mark's gospel, but we've also seen this is not primarily why Jesus came. Jesus' purpose in coming to earth was not to bring about temporary relief, but eternal life. Uh, in Mark 1.15, we saw that Jesus came proclaiming good news, that people were to repent and believe because the kingdom of God had come near. Uh, then in chapter 1, verse 38, he reiterated the reason he had come was primarily not to heal, but to preach. The danger here is that the crowd come to Jesus because they are more interested in what they can get from Jesus than in Jesus himself. They actually don't seem very interested in anything he has to say, only in what he can do for them. And I sense that there is a real danger for us here today. Are we more interested in what Jesus has to offer us? Purpose, meaning, community, support, moral improvement, rather than in Jesus himself. None of those are wrong things in and of themselves. But is there a danger that we desire the gifts and not the giver? That we've begun to treat Jesus like some kind of genie in a bottle. Uh, his love as a self-esteem boost that we just get through the week with. Some helpful diagnostic questions might be, what is your attitude towards Jesus when you don't get what you want? What do you pray for? How do you pray it? How do you feel towards Jesus when you suffer or are ill or have to wait for something because it doesn't quite fit into your plan? Is there a danger that we can be like this crowd in verse 7 and 10, that when we believe Jesus can do something for us, we're in a frenzy, that when life is going our way, we are on a spiritual high, but when life doesn't seem to go so well. When Jesus doesn't do what we want him to, we only feel anger, disappointment. We are bitter towards him because he hasn't given us what we want. The truth is that Jesus is so much better, so much kinder than we realize. He wants to help us through those things that are on our immediate horizon. 
but he also loves us too much to only be concentrated about our tomorrow. Uh, He came so that we might know him and enjoy him forever. We only follow Jesus because of what he can do for us in the here and now. Then who we will be like to Jesus is like this crowd. Frenzied, but fleeting. Uh, When Jesus stops giving us what we want, when difficult things come our way that Jesus doesn't immediately take from us, then there's a danger that we'll just move on to something else that might ease our discomfort more swiftly. Who are you to Jesus? Are are you frenzied but fleeting? Or group two, are you correct but cold? Verse 10 to 12. Uh, The next group of people Jesus encounters in our passage are the spirits, the demons. Uh, And the strange thing here is that the demons are correct about who Jesus is. Uh, They give a model answer. If there's an exam on who Jesus is, the demons, they're in the top 1%. Back in Mark chapter 1, verse 24, a demon correctly identified Jesus as the Holy One of God. Uh, Then in our passage, this impure spirit also correctly identifies Jesus as the Son of God. The demons are correct about who Jesus is, and yet they remain cold. And notice in verse 11 of our passage, though the demon knows who Jesus is, he is not happy to see him. As the impure spirit sees Jesus, he falls down before him and cries out. Same is true in Mark 1.24. The demon there recognized who Jesus was and yet responded, have you come to destroy us? Is there a danger for some of us here tonight that though we recognize who Jesus is, we remain cold towards him? Because you could recognize who Jesus is, the Holy One of God's the Son of God, and yet respond to that truth in two wildly different ways. You can see him for who he truly is, and it can either lead you to fall down before him, crying out in fear, anger, and rebellion, like these impure spirits, or it can lead you to rightly fall down before him in joyful worship. Maybe you've been coming to church for quite a while because you find it all quite intellectually stimulating, You enjoy the Bible teaching here because it's interesting. You enjoy talking philosophy and apologetics, but the reality is that your heart, it remains cold towards Jesus. Don't mishear me. If you're new to faith, if you're exploring, we are so glad that you're here, and we'd love to point you towards a curious course that one of our ministers, Colin, runs for those exploring who Jesus is. But do know this as you begin that exploration You could know all the right answers about who Jesus is. You could be a Christian and you could give all the right answers in your small group study. You could even be passionate about studying theology. And yet, if those correct truths leave you remaining cold, rather than warming your heart towards the Lord Jesus in worship, If who you are to Jesus is correct but cold, if if the truths remain in your head and never filter down to your heart and your hands, if you refuse to bow the knee before Jesus in worship, then who you are to Jesus is no better than the demons that face destruction. 
We'll come back to verse 13 to 19 in our final point. But for now, we'll move on to verse 20 and 21 and consider a third group of people. Those who are close but controlling. I wonder, do you ever feel the need to step in and protect someone because you fear they just don't know what they're doing? I have to confess, I particularly struggle with this when sat in the passenger seat of the car. Uh, In the passenger seat, I worry we're going to crash because the person driving, they, they haven't seen what I've seen. Not everyone can be blessed with a Formula One driver's reflexes. So I just, I step in. I say something, I engage in a bit of backseat driving. Maybe, maybe there's a better gear to be in. They've just not thought things through properly. They just need me to step in, bring a bit of control. I think this is maybe how Jesus' family are feeling towards him in verse 20 and 21. Are they here? Yet another crowd has gathered. Uh, only instead of gathering around a lake, this time they filled a house. So there's not even room for people to eat their dairy lead dunkers in peace without jabbing an elbow into someone's ribs. Uh, and many families, they might have been pleased that Jesus had managed to amass such a following, a proud even. But when Jesus' family hear what's happened, they say in verse 21, he is out of his mind. Who is this man? Jesus' family, they think he's gone mad. They're worried for him. So worried, in fact, that in verse 31, they come to take him away. It's possible Jesus' family think he's actually mentally unwell, that he needs sectioning because he's claiming to be the Messiah. But I think it's more likely that they think he's in his right mind, but he's just not considered the consequences here. He's not seen what they've seen. He's not thinking straight. He just needs them to do a bit of backseat driving uh, with all the stir that he's caused, with the claims that he's, claims going around that he's the Messiah, the Son of God. I think they might just be worried. Jesus is on for an almighty crash with the religious leaders. At worst, the Romans, if they don't step in, he's going to get himself killed. But whether they think he's actually lost his mind or they're just concerned he's not thought through the consequences to his actions, I think the application for us is the same. Is it possible that there are those of us here this evening who are close to Jesus, but who sense the need to try and control him? Surely Jesus kind of meant that. He's a God of love, right? I like to think God is... So surely he can't be, or I know Jesus says this is wrong. It's only a little sin. It's not really hurting anyone, is it? Or maybe there's certain questions, topics that you deliberately avoid talking to friends and family about because you're worried he just doesn't know what he's doing. I like Jesus' family in these verses. You're worried, Jesus, you're just going to get yourself into trouble. And maybe you're going to drag me along in the process. And so you just gently help him steer away from all of that. The grace, mercy, love part, that's amazing. You want to keep that close. But you just feel the need to control what Jesus says on repentance, sin, and judgment. Is there a danger that who we are to Jesus is close but controlling? fourth group of people are those who are spiritual 
but separate. Spiritual, but separate. One of the main sections in our passage revolves yet around yet another interaction with Jesus and the religious teachers, the Pharisees, the spiritual elites of the day. Following the conversations Jesus had with them in last week's passage, we saw they'd begun plotting to kill him in Mark 3, verse 6. But before that plot comes to fruition, they want to discredit Jesus, uh, dissuade people from listening to him. And so what do they do? Look with me at verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. It's interesting to note the teachers of the law don't deny Jesus is doing miraculous things. Even Jesus' greatest opponents, they can't deny that he's doing something incredible. That he's bringing genuine freedom and transformation to those who had lived their life in slavery to demons. So instead of trying to discredit what Jesus is doing by calling it all a fancy magic trick... Uh, Instead of accepting that he had been sent by God, and that's why he was doing these things, they decide to conclude that he must be doing these miraculous things in the power of Beelzebub, Satan, the evil one. To which Jesus responds with a parable, uh, exposing just how illogical that would be. Look with me at verse 23. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. Why would Satan send someone to work against his own purposes, Jesus says? That would be illogical. There would be calls of friendly fire. It would be counterproductive for Satan to do such a thing. So if Jesus isn't with Satan, uh, if he isn't performing these miracles in Satan's power, what is he doing? Verse 27, he gives the answer. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Jesus has come to plunder the strong man's house. Satan is the strong man, Jesus is the stronger man who has come to tie him up and plunder his house. And guess what? You and me, we're the plunder. Jesus is saying he has come in order to disarm Satan, to bind him, to undo his work, to set you and me free from captivity by plundering us out of Satan's house, away from his power and influence. Jesus is not in league with Satan. He is opposed to him. Jesus has not been performing miraculous signs, healing the sick, driving out demons in Satan's name and power. He is God the Father's precious son, sent to do these things in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this leads us to some really serious verses in verse 28 to 30. Look down with me now. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins, and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. 
what an incredible truth and what a serious warning. A person can be forgiven all their sins, any slander that they utter. No matter what you've done, no matter how bad, no matter for how long, if you come to Jesus in repentance, you can receive forgiveness, reconciliation for every sin, except one. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. What does that mean? Notice the context in verse 30. Jesus gives this warning because the Pharisees say he has an impure spirit. And so I think to persist in rejecting the fact that Jesus is God's son, God's king, sent by his father to bring Satan's reign to an end, to persist in saying that what Jesus is doing is demonic and not of God's, without then repenting, that is a terrible sin that will never be forgiven. For all the Pharisees' spirituality, for all their good works, good deeds, they are in danger of being sent to hell because they refuse to accept who Jesus is. The Pharisees may be spiritual, but Jesus is clear, they are separate to what he is doing. Is this who you are to Jesus this evening? Are you with Jesus or are you against him? Ultimately, there's no spiritual fence to sit on. You can be as spiritual as you like, as moral, but unless you have accepted Jesus as God's king, you are separate to him. He is the one who has come to destroy, plunder Satan's kingdom, the one who has come to replace a kingdom of evil with the kingdom of God, and he invites you to come and be forgiven all your sins. That is what it means to be truly spiritual. Are you spiritual or separate? Our fifth and final group of people this evening, inside or outside, verse 31 to 34. Jesus' family are back by verse 31. They've arrived at the jam-packed house Jesus has been teaching at, and either they can't come in or they won't. Instead, they stand outside opting to send someone in who can get Jesus so they can whisk him away. A word filters through the crowd who tell Jesus in verse 32, your your mother and brothers, they're outside looking for you. But notice how Jesus responds from verse 33 onwards. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Phil or Philip? You may well have been wondering if I ever did manage to get myself out of that sticky situation at the impressive wedding I was at earlier this summer. How did I explain who I was in relation to this happy couple when I didn't even know that Phil was really a Philip? Well, if I remember correctly, I think I just said something along the lines of, well, you may have only ever referred to him as Philip. To me, he's always just been my Uncle Phil. Phil is my family. That's who I was to the groom. That's why I had been invited to the impressive wedding. Why I could call him Phil and not Philip, because we are blood. 
Uptons, family. And family is who Jesus invites you to be to him this evening. His blood family has stood outside, and yet Jesus looks around at the crowd inside the house, those sat at his feet in a circle, those who are there to listen to his voice, and he says, this is my family. Is family who you are to Jesus this evening? Do you long to sit at his feet and hear his voice sitting at his feet in worship, sitting at his feet even when what he says is a bit uncomfortable? Because this is who Jesus wants you to be in relation to him this evening. He invites you to take your place in his family, not because of anything you've done or earned, not because of your bloodline or your lineage, but purely at his request, his invitation that you join his family. And if you're thinking, why on earth would Jesus want me to be a part of his family? Just briefly look back at the disciples Jesus chose in verse 13 to 19. We're not going to spend long there. Uh, the first disciple Jesus, uh, the first disciple listed denies Jesus. The last listed betrays him. He calls tax collectors, zealots, James and John, who he has to nickname the sons of thunder because their anger is like the thunder. And yet Jesus wants to take the troublemakers of this world and give them a new mission to make trouble for the sake of his kingdom and gospel instead. He wants to take the outsiders and make them insiders. He wants to take you and me and make us part of his family. Who is this man? In just the first three chapters of Mark's gospel, we see in Jesus is the son of God, the one with authority over disease and the demons, the holy one of God, the promised son of man, the bridegroom, the one who has come bringing the kingdom of God, the one who it's all about. And he came so that you and me might be a part of his family. How do we know the invitation is genuine? Because Jesus went to the cross and died for us so that we might be part of his family. His blood was shed so that we might share a bond with him that is deeper than blood. He rose again so that we might enjoy being his family forever. And he will come again to bring us home. Who are you to Jesus? Because this evening he invites you not to wait outside, but instead to come home. To take your place inside God's house and to know Jesus' father as your father forever as part of his family. Let me pray. Father, forgive us for all of the ways in which we have come before you that are not right. All of these examples listed in our passage, Father, we resonate with them. And yet, Father, thank you that though we have come to you not in the right way, though we have sinned against you, though at times we have rejected you outright, you came to die for us so that we might be part of your family. Father, if that has become a familiar truth to us, would you help us to revel in that in this final song? And Lord, if that is something that we have not done for ourselves, help us to put our trust in you and to come home so that we can know you as Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.